Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. My name is Pat Horn, and joining us today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Janet Brashler, a retired Grand Valley State University professor, uh, who is also a trained archaeologist. And so today, we're going to talk about a special uh, dig site that she worked on here in Muskegon County called the Spring Creek Site. Uh, so before we talk about this site, though, I just want to have you tell us a little bit about yourself, Professor Brashler. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to do this, Patrick. I am a, uh, I've been retired from teaching at Grand Valley for three years. I was there for almost 30 years before that, and for a number of years before that, working with the federal government, and then before that, worked at, taught at Adrian College uh, for a little bit. And before that, I was uh, working on my PhD at Michigan State in anthropology with an emphasis in Great Lakes archeology. span And so that's kind of my background. And my um, relationship to this site stems from work that I did for my dissertation in 1976 is probably when I visited the collections at Grand Valley State Colleges, it was then, oh, yeah. that um, Richard Flanders, my predecessor in, in the job, had worked at the site in the early late 60s or early 1970s. And so these, these sherds, some of which we have sitting in front of us, were were a critical part of my my uh, doctoral dissertation. So I have a long history with the site, having worked uh, with the collections in the 70s, and then returned to the vicinity of the site and did some work there in 2016 and 2018. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, the term sherds is typically used by archaeologists to describe basically broken small pieces of pottery. That's the technical term we right. use sherds, right? Uh, and the Spring Creek site, just to introduce it a little bit. Uh, we're not going to give the full details of it to help That's protect its integrity, but it's located on the eastern side of Muskegon County in the, we'll say the Wolf Lake area, just to give you kind of an idea of uh, the site we're going to be talking about. Now, when archaeologists uh, start working on sites such as Spring Creek here, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what that process is like? Well, maybe maybe one thing that would be interesting would be the history of people working at the site. You know, the site, uh, if I can do that. Um, the site was one of the first sites recorded in, in um, Muskegon County uh, back in the early 20th century, actually, before the Muskegon Centennial, which was a focal time period for doing archaeology, actually. So the site was known for a long, long time and was visited by a series of avocational people as well as professional archaeologists. So the first excavations were test excavations by a fellow named George Quimby in the 1930s. The most significant excavations at the site were done by a couple of avocational archaeologists named uh, George Davis and Ed Gillis in the 1950s. Even though they were avocational archaeologists, they approached the site from a very professional standpoint. They created a grid with an XY series of coordinates, and they dug in in five by five foot squares, and they mapped everything very carefully, and actually did a, a really pretty professional job of uh, recovering information from the site. So that work by George Davis and Ed Gillis in the 50s was the foundational work at the site. And then my uh, my predecessor, Richard Flanders, visited the site in the late 60s, early 70s, and also did some work, uh, established a different grid. Uh, that's, that's the way most um, archaeologists approach a site, by trying to control the, the spatial relationships between things that are found at the site. And that's because archaeology is a destructive process. 
And when, when we take things out of the ground, we remove them from their context, we remove them from their relationships to other things, and it's those relationships to other things in space, both horizontal space and you know, space as you dig down in, in vertical space as well, that give us some indication of what these things all mean. If you just have an object, you know, a rim shirt, which is from the top of a pot, pick it up and you say, okay, I have this object. What do you know about it other than it's a rim shirt? Unless you have all of that other really important contextual information that comes from being able to say, this was found here three inches away from this piece that was here and hey, they fit together or, you know, something like that. Yeah, and archaeology context is king, right? It's the most, it's the most important thing. Um, otherwise, what you're doing is just collecting objects. You're just being a, you know, there, there's no science to what you're doing. It's, you're becoming a, you know, you're artifact a collector. Hunter. You're yeah. a collector. You're yeah. an artifact hunter. And that's the thing that was so interesting about the work of, of uh, George Davis and Ed Gillis is, is that they, they really, even though they were not pr- trained professionally, they were really trying hard to conduct their res- their their work at this site in a professional manner and so their their data is valuable i was gonna say so that data yeah that they created that's stuff that people still today can look at and mm-hmm. refer to when mm-hmm. looking mm-hmm. at this site yep now the site spring creek here uh, what what do we kind of know about it uh, based on its location um some things that were discovered there what's kind of the the story behind it and what time period are we talking about that's a very interesting question. For the most part, uh, people saw the site as a uh, village site that dates to about 1000 AD. And that's based on a single radiocarbon date that Flanders received from his excavation in the, the late 60s, early 70s. And what we have come to know from subsequent work that was done there and the different styles of pottery is that the site was, was visited uh, repeatedly by people for probably several hundred years, probably beginning during a period of time we call the Middle Woodland, which begins around um, 100 BC in this area. And in fact, one of these sherds that I'd pulled out from the bags earlier this morning is probably a Middle Woodland sherd wow. and not a Late Woodland sherd. So, so I think that there's the story of the site and how old it is and and it's in you know what it what it says changes has changed considerably over the last 50 or 60 years. It probably was a campsite that people stopped at. Uh, one of the things that allows us to suggest that is that Gillis and Davis excavations found uh, a number of different kinds of uh, pit features, storage pit features and roasting features so that people were not just staying there for a, a day and moving on. There was there was some longevity to the amount of time that there was they were staying there the other information that gives us some indication of what it might have been used for comes from the faunal remains the the animal remains that were recovered from the site which suggests that people were there hunting lots of big mammals and that's interesting given the fact that the muskegon river a source of fish is pretty darn close and the uh, uh, Spring Creek uh, location is a marshy location. There would have been fish and other kinds of, of, of plant resources and animal resources. But we don't know a whole lot more than the fact that they were hunting deer and bear and beaver and these larger kind of meaty mammals, which is very 
common during the woodland period, from which, like I said, the, at least at this site begins around AD 100 or 100 BC, excuse me. And probably the site was occupied off and on uh, intermittently until maybe 1100 AD. So along, it was, wow, a, it, yeah. was an, it was a really interesting place for people to visit again and again and again. And it probably was because of the, the abundance of resources that are located there and some other things going on in that area as well. So a few things I'd like to ask you about that. Um, do we know approximately how many people we were looking at in mm. this in this site in the area? Do we have an estimate of you know, a large group, small group? I, I, would, I would have to guess a fairly small group. I think we're looking at people who are living in, in what we call uh, hunter-gatherer band kinds of societies. So typically talking about a group of, of 30 to 50 people, no more than 50 people and probably less than that. There was some speculation in the absence of any plant remains from the site because they weren't focusing on collecting plant remains back in the 50s. There was no technology. We didn't have the technology to do that back then. So we don't know. There was some speculation that they were horticultural, that they were actually growing crops in this area. And there's no evidence of that. I'm not saying that they didn't grow crops, but the animal remains signature... Uh, suggests that these were hunter-gatherer people rather than than horticultural people. Even though horticulture is probably beginning to be practiced around 1000 AD in this area. It's kind of the end of the period that we're talking about at this site. Yeah, yeah. Now you'd mentioned radiocarbon dating. Can Mm -hmm. you just explain quickly how that works in a somewhat simplified way? I know there's a lot of steps to it. Sure, sure. So radiocarbon dating, and this is an interesting thing to think about actually, became a technology available to archaeologists only in the early 1950s after uh, we learned about nuclear materials with all of the research that was done related to the bomb during the Second World War. So radiocarbon dating is a, a technique that allows you to date carbonized materials, so plant remains, anything that was living and used carbon. So you can even, there are even ways to date bone because there are is small amounts of carbon in bone. And it's predicated or it's based on the idea that um, there are different isotopes or different forms of carbon that one of which is radioactive or radiometric. And when a plant uses carbon in photosynthesis, it doesn't recognize the difference between the the different forms of carbon. So it's taking in carbon-12 and carbon-14, and there's a carbon-13 that it can take in as well. And so when the animal or the plant dies, it stops taking in that carbon, and the radioactive carbon starts to decay. So a thousand years later, you can measure the amount of radioactivity in that specimen and calculate, given the known rate of decay of carbon-14, about how old that thing was when it died. So it kind of gives us a rough outline of gives you know, a few yeah. hundred years here or there. Kind of. Yeah, most radiocarbon dates are expressed in terms of a, a plus or minus factor. Uh, we have some degree of confidence, but not. they, they don't give you a date of... April 25th, 1978. Yeah, no, you don't get that kind of precision. But one of the interesting things as this technology has evolved is is the development of something called accelerator mass spectrometry dating, which um, is a much more precise version of radiocarbon dating. And we now are able to date 
little minuscule amounts of material that has carbon in it. And one of the great revolutions that began in the 1980s was the ability to date residues on pottery sherds, these these things that we have spread out on the table here. And these dates are much narrower. The confidence interval, the plus or minus, is much narrower than a standard radiocarbon date. So, so you can get a, a, um, an AMS date of like 1,000 plus or minus 25 years. So within 50 wow. years yeah. in some cases. You know, and that's really... That's within someone's that, lifetime, yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's really precise. That's great precision for the field of archaeology compared to the fact that before 1948, we didn't have any way of doing that. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of this pottery that we had in front of us. So I know we can't see it because we're on a podcast here, but just to describe it, it kind of earthy brown colored, I'd say, beige-ish. Uh, <laughs> the pieces we have in front of us, you can see in some of them different um, inclusions within them, different materials that were part of the clay. Uh, and there's some patterning to a lot of these pieces. Can you just tell us a little bit more about these pieces that were found here and what, what they tell us about the people that were living there? Well, Another thing that's happened that's as as we've learned more and more about archaeology in the past, we've learned that different cultures approached pottery making with different recipes for making their pots. And not and so so there are lots of different things. There's not only the the way pots were decorated and formed and shaped that is of interest to archaeologists because that's cultural. That's embedded in what people think is the right way to do things, you know, the right way to make an object that says, this is who we are, and this is our way of expressing this. But not only does the way a pot is decorated reflect a, a particular culture's idea about itself, the, the recipe that they choose to make their pots says something as well. We've learned that that changes over time. So there's one piece of pottery here, one sherd, that is like you said, pretty earthy colored. It's it's not very exciting, brown, tan color. But for me, when I pick it up, I notice that it's full of little white pieces of temper. So, so the recipe of a pot is the clay plus the inclusions that they put in it to make the pot fire without breaking, basically, is okay. why you put temper you're taking, in You're taking wet clay. You're, you're taking wet clay it. and you're going to bake it, you're going to form it, and then you're going to bake it into the, the, the shape that you, you want. And the inclusions that people choose to put in the clay body varies over time. And it's, it's really cultural selection. So this, this little piece has all these little white inclusions. And I am of the opinion that this was something that people did earlier in the woodland period. So between AD, uh, between 100 BC and AD three or 400. If I had to guess, I would say this was a sherd that was made during that time period. On the other hand, there's this little sherd. This is a rim sherd, so it comes from the top of the pot, and it's very thin. The temper is um, kind of mixed pink, black. Um, There's no real obvious white temper compared to the one that I was just looking at. And this is much more typical of the later woodland period, and the, the style of the the rim, the shape of the rim, the decorations that are on the rim all come together with the, the clay body and say, you know, this is a late woodland shirt that probably dates around AD nine, between 900 and 1000. 
So it's kind of like fashion, right? We can look at certain things of fashion, like okay, that's 1970s. People were wearing that, and this is oh yeah, this is 2000s. Yeah, I I, I liken it to uh, like when mini skirts started to be, and I'm old enough to remember that, by the way. Um, but when mini skirts, you know, became the fashion, thanks to Twiggy in England, you know, in the 1960s, no woman was seen wearing a skirt above her knees before then, right. anywhere, anytime. And so, so it, it was a, a cultural choice. People adopted that particular way of dressing themselves, just like people with, with their pottery in uh, the, the past adopted different ways of making their pots to say, this is who we are, and this is why we think we're cool. <laughs> now, is the clay these pots are made of, do we know, is it all local clay, or is it some from different areas in Michigan? That's, that's another really good question. In Michigan, clay is almost, uh, we would use the word ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And all you have to do is find an exposure of it. And it's, it's partly because of the Pleistocene geology of the area. So even in sandy areas where there's lake plain or um, glacial sand deposits, if you go deep enough, you're going to find clay. And so clay can be found in like stream cuts, you know, it's it's really hard. I tried doing this actually back a while ago to say, okay, there are different sources. There there are just a handful of sources of clay. No, it's everywhere. So you can't you can't say, oh, they're getting it from hundred miles away. There's probably clay within. Well, given the amount of pottery here, I would say they're getting their clay locally. Now, um, like I said, there's a lot of pottery here that you have from Grand Valley. I know the University of Michigan from earlier digs also has a lot of pottery pieces. Is that the most common thing found at Spring Creek and in most sites? You know, this is one of the things that makes Spring Creek interesting, is that it is the most common material found at the site, which sort of led to some of the early interpretations that it was a village site, because can you imagine being a mobile hunter-gatherer and you're carrying all these pots around with you. You know, it's right. not not you. You're going to make pots and stay in one place. So pottery is kind of seen as a indicator of of some degree of um, staying put or sedentism is the word we use. It is by far the most common material at this site, and that does make it quite unusual. And I don't have a very good explanation for why that is the case, frankly. Something we might discover or figure out later. There's on. something. There's always new stuff to figure out in archaeology. Well, and there's new technology. I mean, you there's mentioned new... some of that too. That changes the whole game when you right. discover a new technology that lets you unlock another piece of the puzzle. Right. So I just like you know this was seen as a, a single component late woodland site. I now am quite confident that it's a multi-component, multiple occupations site, and that's because of the technological stuff that I've learned um, over the, the several decades that I've been, been doing this, including uh, the use of something called petrography, which is looking at the composition of, of pots by making a little thin section and looking at the clay and the mineralogy under a microscope. Uh, so we've talked a little about there's animal remains found at the site from mm-hmm. harvesting food, um, lots of pottery pieces, anything else discovered at the site? The majority, well, I, I mentioned the, the features, so there's some hearth features and some storage features, which also lend to the idea that people were there for more than a day. But I think that the other piece that makes this interesting is the wider context that the site exists within. So if, if you look beyond the particular location of the Spring Creek site, within maybe a mile and a half or two miles in this area, there are probably 
25 or 30 other sites. Just like you can't understand what's going on at, at one site, within a site, without knowing the relationship between individual pieces that you find, you can't, I think, understand what's going on at a site unless you look at the larger context of what's going on in the geographic space around it. So within a couple of miles of, of the Spring Creek site are um, recorded sites of, of uh, burial mounds and earthen enclosure uh, that was thought to be a fort or a fortification of some sort, um, a series of uh, cash pit sites or storage pits that um, people were digging big holes in the ground and throwing stuff in it and then coming back and digging all this stuff out. And they're very frustrating to work with because when we find them, they're empty. <laughs> <laughs> you know something was there, but yeah. We know, they were, we know something was there, but we don't know what. Even um, a little bit further away, there, there are indications that people were um, involved with this particular landform along the Muskegon River uh, for perhaps 10,000 years. So wow. there's a really long and, and deep uh, history of, of human occupation and use of this area. And the, the Spring Creek site, I'm pretty sure, figures in with some of these other locations within the, the general vicinity. So it kind of seems like people were really kept coming back to this site year after year, decades after decade. And, and using other portions of the landform to do other kinds of things as well. Now, the main time period that we're kind of talking, you mentioned 100 BC to about 1100 mm-hmm. AD or so here. Um, that's kind of typically before the period when we talk about Native Americans here in Michigan. For a lot of people, we're used to the Ottawa, Chippewa, Potawatomi. These are precursors to those yes. um, civilizations or groups, right? Groups, yeah. One of the real frustrating things for archaeologists, and, and to some extent I think for indigenous people in Michigan, is that there's no really good direct evidence linking the, the contemporary groups that were here at or around the time of European contact with these past cultures. We can say broadly that these were probably related in some way, that they were probably people who spoke similar kinds of languages, but we can't say that this was a site that was occupied by Ottawa or Badawatomi or uh, Ojibwe people. It's just that the connection is just not there. The best evidence that we have uh, for the presence of um, Odawa people or Ottawa people in this area really comes from, from not much before the mid-18th century. So there's a pretty big disjunction, but that doesn't mean that um, indigenous people aren't connected to, to this because the, the Potawatomi and Odawa and, and Ojibwe that I've talked with see these people as ancestors, whether they're direct lineal ancestors mm-hmm. or you know ancestors who were here and, and moved slightly further west or north or south or some other location. So there's a, there's a connection, but it's just... It's not an easy connection to say, you know, like we can go back, uh, I can go back to the 18th century in my family, but you can't do that here. Yeah. A little bit trickier to try it's to trickier. figure that out. Yeah. What is the significance of this site to Michigan and kind of the larger Midwest area? Well, it's an important site in the history of Michigan archaeology. I mean, it's it's been in the literature for almost 100 years, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. The site and its larger context, I think, are probably significant at a, at a national level. The Spring Creek site is on the National Register of Historic Places, which is a designation that acknowledges its significance at a national level. Oh. 
it's given its name. The Spring Creek name has been given to uh, ceramic series that archaeologists all over the Midwest are, uh, well, if they've read the literature, um, are, are familiar with, you know, certainly archaeologists who work in Michigan are familiar with, with um, Spring Creek ceramics. It's a type site for that, which means, you know, it's the first place that these things were described by archaeologists. Um, and that's based on the work that Gillis and Davis did in the 50s. Just really quickly to jump in on some of this pottery, because sure. uh, I don't think we mentioned it earlier, but uh, you know, there's one piece here, a large piece that I'm looking at that has it looks like almost vertical lines in it. So, mm. were some of these pots, you know, decorated? Were they kind of fancied up or personalized? Well, okay. So this larger piece that we're looking at um, has something called cord marking on the exterior, and cord marking was a not a decorative technique. I don't think it was a a um, manufacturing technique. So when, as people were making or forming their pots, they were slapping the clay with a paddle that, or a piece of wood that had been wrapped with a piece of twine. And interestingly, <laughs> um, ceramics are one of the ways that we can access information about fibers in the prehistoric past because fibers are perishable. You don't find a lot of fiber in the archaeological record, but we can access information about them from the impressions that are made on clay pots. But to go back to your question, this is this is probably a surface treatment part of the manufacturing process. And they, they, they would slap the pot to get air bubbles out, because if you have air bubbles trapped in the clay, and then and there's moisture associated with it, and you throw it on a pot on a fire, and what happens with moisture and heat you get steam, it expands, the pot blows up. So you want to get the, the bubbles out. So these cord marking, uh, these cord marks are indicative of, of a surface treatment. Now, if there's another one here that doesn't have any cord marking on the exterior. And so that's a cultural thing. They might have cord marked it, but they wanted a smooth surface for some reason. They said, that cord marking, that's kind of sloppy looking. <laughs> so they decided to smooth it and use that kind of surface. There's some people who suggest cord marking also is a way of creating more surface on the pot so that heat can be distributed more diffusely across the surface of the pot. There are lots of different technological reasons to cord mark your pots. Other kinds of things like this this other one that we have sitting in front of us is cord marked, but then there's another different thing going on. Um, it's like a, a divot in the clay. And what, what I think this is, is a, um, there was a cord wrap stick that had, in, in other words, a small, you know, about the size of a pencil or maybe a little bit smaller, that had been wrapped with cordage and then pressed in the clay to make a design. And so that's a decoration yeah. rather than this surface treatment, um, which is more about the fabrication of the pot. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So there's... There's that, functional, but it's kind of functional and decorative, too. Sure, sure. So cord marking is functional and decorative. Um, then the, here's a, I'm holding a little rim shirt here, There's and there's a decoration across the, the lip of the, the rim that is probably another little cord wrap tool of some kind. Um, and then the interior of the lip at the top of the pot also has a little cord wrap tool impression. So so people decorated their pots, and, and that's, you know, it's like... Um, Again, if we go back to fashion, it's like choosing a, a red skirt over a brown skirt, maybe, or choosing something that's got embroidery or you know, some kind of detailing. Um, so it's, these are cultural preferences, and, and the things that people choose 
to decorate that pots are saying something about who they are and their identity. And the Spring Creek site was one of the first places here in Michigan where that type of thing was identified. Is that well, that's, uh, kind of how it gave? It's it, it's one of the places. That, there were other places at the same time where, and archaeologists were saying, okay, well, over here in West Michigan, they're decorating their pots like this, and over here in Eastern Michigan, they're decorating their pots like this, and so. These maybe these are two different groups of people, so it's that kind of that kind of aha moment that um, you begin to realize that people were doing things differently, and maybe they maybe you can say that there are different groups of people. Do we not have any guess? You know what these pots actually held? I mean, were they for cooking, for storage? The the original uh, interpretation that Jim Fitting, James, Dr. James Fitting who has a publication about the site from 1968. Um, Jim suggested that these were related to carrying water from the creek to the village area, that the larger pots are found further away from the creek, and so his his thinking was that they were related to water uh, movement and storage, perhaps. One of the things that we've learned in the last, I don't know, 30 years or 25 years or so is that when pots are used for cooking, they leave different kinds of patterns. Sometimes they will leave, if they're used for um, boiling stews, for example, for, for wet cooking, uh, they will leave crusty residues sometimes on the inside. And those were the residues that I mentioned earlier you can actually date, um, which give you a, you know, a, within a generation idea of when that pot was actually being used. That's really exciting, you know. Yeah. But most of the pots at Spring Creek do not have any of that kind of residue on them. And so my guess from what I've seen of them uh, is that they were using them for, for water transportation like Jim had originally suggested, or for some kind of dry cooking, or maybe just storage. They're uniform in color. There's no indication that, that any kind of wet, you know, cooking... Like, think about the, the greasy stuff that you get on your frying pan when you're cooking, uh, or, or, you know, when you're making a soup or a stew on the inside of your pot, if you let it burn too long. <laughs> um, there's no indication that, that that's what is going on with these pots. I think there's something else that's happening there. It's, it's some kind of maybe dry cooking... Um, roasting, not not wet cooking. I don't know, parching, uh, maybe drying drying food of some sort in in it. You know, drying seeds or I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully, a new technology will help there, us figure it out. Well, or, or a, re, a revisit of the existing collection, and that's why I'll give a plug for for this. That's why it's really important to maintain that provenience, the you know the location information, and carefully curate and take care of these collections because. You can keep going back to them again and again and asking new questions. And if I were, <laughs> if I were at the beginning of my career instead of you know coming close to the end, I would I would be asking those kinds of questions. What evidence do we have for the type of cooking that was going on with these pots? That actually kind of transitions me into my next question here. If you're someone listening to this podcast and you find something or you think you've found something, what should you do? What steps should you take? That is the single most important question you, you've asked, I think. The very best thing to do if you think you've found something is to contact a place like Lakeshore Museum Center, where there are people who know about archaeology, or a university that has a local archaeologist like Grand Valley State University has, has somebody, several people who know about local archaeology. 
uh, other museums um, as well uh, would be would be good resources. Um, and I know that I spend a lot of time when I was at Grand Valley responding to those kinds of public queries. That's what we do to try and work with the public because we can learn things. We can't be everywhere, but right. the public is everywhere. And so we, we learn about where there are, are new sites and get ideas for different kinds of research. And, and so people at, you know, people at a museum or a university would be able to help identify whether it really is an artifact. Sometimes, sometimes people have referred to, to me as the dream crusher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, know, I know the feeling, yep. <laughs> because because it, they think it's an artifact, but it, it ends up being something produced by nature, and, and it's, um, it's always hard to, to, to do that. But, but um, sharing that information and working with the public is one of the most important things that archaeologists and museum professionals can do. It's like that provenience that you talked about, you know. So if you see something, you just go pick it up. Well, then you've kind of lost that story of what's around it, where it was buried. That's um, right. So it's best to usually just leave things alone, right? It's best right. you can. It's best to leave things alone. But if, you know, for example, a lot of people find things during construction, like the big mastodon find in northern Kent County here just recently. You find things during construction, you're not going to leave something that's going to be destroyed. But the important thing is to share what you found the location of what you found with someone who can make a record of it so it's not lost forever. The um, analogy that a lot of people, a lot of archaeologists use is if you don't preserve the provenience or the location information uh, where something was found, it's like you're taking pages out of a, the last copy of a book. There are no 100 or 1,000 year old archaeological sites being made anymore. They're done. There's a finite number of them. And when you pull those pages out of the last copy of the book, it's gone forever. So it's, it's just really important to, to try and preserve that part of the past. They're like, archaeological sites are like endangered species in some ways. You know, once they're, once they're disturbed or destroyed, they're gone forever. Is there anything else you wanted to share with us about the Spring Creek site or the area in general? The area is a really interesting area. It's got a lot of potential for additional research. Um, uh, if 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 I hadn't retired, I'd be going back there again. And I've done a fair amount of work in the Grand River Valley as well. But I, this is this is a very interesting and special area. Hopefully, we can keep it that way for a long, long time. I'd like to thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Brashler, and sharing us um, all your knowledge. My pleasure. I I have really enjoyed the conversation.